Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. Stay tuned for excerpts from Spencer's interview of Dr. Philippa Malgram, a noted economist, author, and presidential advisor, as she warns of a potential dystopian future that awaits us all if we don't take action now. There's a twin of me and you and everyone listening that already exists, and decisions are now made not on the basis of what I say or what you say, but on the basis of what our digital twins are showing. And in that space, that holographic data space, that's the Wild West of our generation. That's the location where we have no rules of the road, we have no law, we have nothing to say how the data can be used, even if it's used adversely against your interests. Don't miss our Where's the Love segment as we get out on the streets to find out if Californians believe that their privacy rights are being trampled on by big tech. We ask if they would support paying a monthly fee, just like you do to your cell phone provider, if it would stop big tech and Google in particular, from compiling information about you and then selling it or using it to censor information that it deems objectionable. Then, get a sneak preview of my interview with Dr. Philippa Malgram, noted economist and author who served as an economic advisor to President George Bush. You'll be fascinated and probably shocked by what Pippa reveals about how much big tech and government knows about you and what they plan to do with this information and likely how digital currency may promote this agenda. Big Brother of Star Trek, stay tuned to find out. Then, tune into our legal segment as I bring you up to speed on the latest laws affecting lenders, landlords, and investors. And I'll include a special report on domestic and international consumer privacy laws. They're probably really just a smokescreen for greater governmental control and limitations on your rights to privacy. Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? Most everyone who uses the internet's discovered that when they search for an item or visit a particular site, not long thereafter, you're targeted from companies selling similar products and services. How do they get your information? Well, it appears that in many instances, your search engine provider or social media host sold it to them. In a recent book called Google Leaks, a whistleblower's expose of big tech censorship, a software engineer at Google named Zach Voorhees disclosed that Google does far more with their information than merely just sell it to advertisers. Voorhees details in his book that Google compiles information on its users and it runs it through advanced artificial intelligence programs that compile information not only on your buying habits, but on your political, social, and search habits and your questions. 
The information is used by Google to compare what you search for to Google's corporate and political ideology. So Google can compile data files about you and rate you and predict your behavior. When Google deems developing news stories or your search inquiries about them or your website visits about them disfavored subjects and unacceptable, they effectively limit or censure the news and your rights and ability to be able to receive or send information about this news. They do it either directly on its search engine by burying or delisting disfavored subjects or news, or they stop distribution of your rights to broadcast or disseminate news on YouTube, which it also owns. For our Where is the Love segment, I ask people, primarily in Calaveras County, California, would you support paying a monthly fee to Google to use their search engine, like you do when you pay your cell bill or other regulated utility bills, if it meant that Google or YouTube couldn't use or sell your personal information? I was sure surprised at the responses I received. Many people are unequivocal. They'd pay a fee to protect their privacy or they'd enact legislation to stop big tech from using their information. Okay, what's your name? My name is Mace. Okay, Mace, where are you from? I am from Utah. Great. And Mace, if instead of using Google or any search engine for free, you had to pay a monthly fee uh, like you would to any utility like a cell phone provider, and in exchange they couldn't use your personal data either to sell it or rate you socially or do any of that, would you want that? Yes. Uh, I don't think they should be allowed to, so legislation would be nice. Great. Thank you. What's your name? John Yates. And John, where are you from? New Hartford, Connecticut. Because I don't want my information to affect what happens to me uh, by some large company. Carol, um, San Jose, California. Absolutely. Okay, and why would you support that? I do not like my information out there. Anything. For others, it's a matter of how much it would cost to protect their privacy. For one, when you get to $75 a month, the answer is maybe. What's your name? Kumi Schaefer. Okay, where are you from, Kumi? San Rafael. Yes, I would, but it depends on how much it would cost. All right, so let's say, for example, it was like cell phones, $75 a month. Would you pay that in exchange for your privacy or no? Would $75 cover my whole family? Yes, let's say it covered your whole family, yes. <laughs> Maybe. Another thought that no one should have to pay a fee to protect their privacy. And it's a constitutional right that's being abused at the expense of the poor and the needy. Okay, what's your name? Joseph. Joseph, where are you from? California. I would support that, but the only thing I have, the only question I have is why do we have to pay for our privacy? Shouldn't our privacy be guaranteed without having to pay for it? And that's what bugs me about the whole situation. Yes. That, that's just putting, that, putting it in the hands of the wealthy people, and then poor people don't have a choice in the matter. They have to go with all their information being put out there publicly, whereas wealthy people can um, hide their information, and um, it shouldn't be a question of... We shouldn't have to pay for our privacy to be there. We should have privacy automatically. Well, if, there's, if they're rating me socially, that's, that's private information. How can, how can a private company get away with rating anyone socially? I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. That should be against the law. One person knew where privacy rights were being abused by Google and big tech, but wouldn't pay a fee to ensure privacy because she believed her private information would still stand up to public scrutiny. Shirley LaBoy, Hayward, California. I don't think so. Why not? I don't expect it to be private. I, I, I mean, I'm not online. I'm not affiliated with anything that's going to bring the FBI into my life. And so I would say that most of what I do 
can be public. Another thought that there's really nothing you can do to stop big tech no matter what you do. Even if you paid a fee, they'd still use your information. What's your first name? It's Kat with a K. Okay, and Kat, where are you from? Uh, originally San Francisco. About since the mid-90s, there has been zero privacy. And I remember back in the late 90s, there was another company selling, oh, we'll keep you private. I think it's a load of crap, basically. <laughs> I believe that pretty much people are out there getting around this and selling information right and left without any inhibitions whatsoever, even though they are not legally doing they're probably going to a second or third party and doing it that way. Thank you. And finally, one person clearly wanted more regulation to protect privacy. He experienced firsthand that the ever-present Alexa was not as innocent as she claimed to be, spying on his mother-in-law and getting his children to join in to do it. What's your name? Riley. And Riley, where are you from? San Francisco. Well, I believe our privacy is important. Um, when we all started using Google initially, I don't think we realized that we were giving away all of our personal information to a private company. Uh, now that we know that, I think it's important that we're able to um, retain our privacy. But I do have a situation or an incident where we have an Alexa home product. And uh, as part of that product, you could call a family member or anyone in your phone book. And my five-year-old likes to use it to call his grandmother. And one time he used it to call his grandmother, and uh, it turned out it was just an intercom that opened in on another end of an Alexa, whereas we could listen in on what was going on in someone else's home, and they had no idea that we were listening in. So Amazing. Scary. And when that happened, we unplugged it and put it in a, put in a box and put it in storage because we I didn't want anyone else to have the ability to listen in on me or didn't want to accidentally slip in and listen to anyone else. And it also uh, is concerning because if I can do that, or my five-year-old can do that and accidentally spy on his grandmother, I can imagine that other people could do it and spy on us as well. We don't want that. We sure don't. Is the Alexa still safely tucked away in the closet or did it get out? Uh, as far as I can recall, it is in a storage unit right now. So it's not. there's not a lot there for it to listen in on. I might check to make sure. Thank you. You got it. The unauthorized use of private information to monitor and control people it's one of the greatest threats to individual liberties in the history of our planet. No one elected Google. No one authorized Google or any other big tech information provider to rate you or me or to limit what can be said or not said on the internet. Google's able to escape regulation by using Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which protects online platforms from liability for the user's posts and conversely allows them to moderate user content without being treated as a publisher. They can do both, and they're shielded in most instances from liability for lawsuits. So on one hand, Google can't be sued for calls to revolution that the Taliban might post on its site. However, on the other hand, Google, YouTube, or Facebook can selectively determine who's advancing hate speech or ideas that, that they deem unreliable or contrary to public interest, like, for example, Joe Rogan's recent use of ivermectin to address... Uh, his COVID-19 uh, onslaught. And they can use their power to either bury or limit free speech on issues that are in dispute based on their own political and social leanings. China already has an official state-sponsored social credit system that reports on, quote-unquote, the trustworthiness of individuals, corporations, and government entities across China. And China publish, uh, punishes or rewards those who are either up or down on the social scale. Anyone with a brain knows that this is Orwellian control that's designed to regulate every area of human life 
and it's not getting better. We're not far behind China when we let Google, Facebook, or any unregulated tech oligarch use our data to regulate what can be discussed or argued in the public setting. Section 230 needs to be amended to address and regulate tech monopolies, just like utilities. But there's a bigger picture. Just like when the Dutch brought a trillion-dollar island called Manhattan for 60 Dutch guilders worth of tools and trinkets, we need to see that we're trading away some of our most valuable rights, free speech, freedom of religion. We're trading away our legacy for trinkets. And we have a chance to stop it. Stop it now while we still have any power left at all to do so. But the time's running out. I interviewed Dr. Philippa Malgram on September 22, 2021. Pippa, as she's generally called, is a noted economist. She's an author and a former advisor to President George Bush. The interview will be played in full in our next episode. For now, join me and Pippa as we discuss the future of money, the impact on Bitcoin, and how digital currency will be used to virtually take all of your personal information and use it in ways you may not like. Do you think Bitcoin and other marquee cryptocurrency names like you know Ethereum and etc. that they'll be supplanted by Silicon Valley central banks or sovereign nations, or will they have their own separate place? So, bottom line is now that the Chinese have introduced a sovereign digital currency, which is known as the DCEP, the DCEP, and it's gaining traction. Other governments are going, wait a minute, we should catch up with that. Because they've realized that it's not actually money in one sense. It's kind of just a surveillance system that looks like money. And so it allows government to track not just all your transactions, but connect it to all the data that you're throwing off, whether it's on your mobile phone or on your search engines or whatever. It creates a kind of grid of information and uh, so right now, the U.S. has J.P. Morgan doing a, um, a sort of trial practice run with a sovereign digital currency, which I think will be the foundation for a digital dollar. The British are looking at uh, the so-called Britcoin. Um, but it's a profoundly different thing than just digitizing the money. It's an entirely new system of finance. And I'll, I'll just give you two examples of what I mean why. One is that this money shows up literally in your phone without warning. That's how the Chinese have populated it, um, got adoption going. It just, you wake up one morning, you pick up your mobile phone and there's like a thousand bucks that wasn't there before given to you by the government. So of course you're delighted to use it. But ultimately what'll happen is politicians will be able to look at all your data and say, ah, this person didn't agree with me on a policy. Therefore, we're going to tax them by deducting from their mobile phone, or this person agreed with me and voted with me, and I want to reward them, so I'll give them $1,000 on their mobile phone. It becomes not just a, a system where you can coerce based on behavior, but one in which you can really like create behaviors. And so this is something profoundly different than we've ever seen before. And I think it's a dramatic change and, and something we need to have a conversation about as a society. So fundamentally, what I think is happening is sovereigns are introducing sovereign digital money, and that will create a fork in the road. Either your crypto is compliant with what the sovereign wants, or it's not. If it's compliant, 
they will be allowed to continue. And remember, we have like, I mean, I can't keep track. It moves every day, but it's like something like 17,000 cryptocurrencies now exist. So Bitcoin's only one of them. So of those 17,000, I would say the ones that are compliant with what the sovereign wants, they will continue to exist. The ones that are not, they will literally run them out of town. So that's one level. The second level you're asking is, is there a difference between East and West, between China and the U.S.? And my answer there is actually not so much because we talk a lot about this, the Chinese social credit system and that being, you know, again, a very invasive surveillance mechanism that's designed to get people to walk in a particular straight line. But we do it in the West as well. You know, Google, Facebook, they are also um, assessing your social credit and scoring you. It's just it's we privatize the function. And that's why I think we're really at a seminal moment in history where this new data space, it's almost like you and I, we have, we're throwing off all this data, it creates a digital twin, right? There's a twin of me and you and everyone listening that already exists. And decisions are now made not on the basis of what I say or what you say, but on the basis of what our digital twins are showing. And in that space, that holographic data space, that's the wild west of our generation. That's the location where we have no rules of the road. We have no law. We have nothing to say how the data can be used, even if it's used adversely against your interests. So this is something that's super important. And I think a lot of people in the crypto space, they're just like, well, I'll just exit this whole thing. But you can't exit the data space. It, it's just there. You're still in it. You're just you're even more actively in it than you know, because your digital twin knows more than you do. Hotel California, you can get in, but you can never leave. You know, it's interesting, though, when you look at the history of this, the cypherpunks or those who invented uh, Bitcoin thought this would be a way out of government regulation. And what you're saying is, in effect, this is the way to ultimate government regulation. True? Uh, I think they did think that. And I do think they were wrong about that. I'm not convinced that it leads to total government regulation because technological innovation is happening very rapidly and it always runs ahead of where government is. But... Um, I do think, look, at the end of the day, when you when you pick up your mobile phone and you transact, and let's face it, to, to be in the crypto space, you have to have a keyboard, right? You're still going to have to type in your password or your key or whatever. That keyboard is not private, right? At the end of the day, anything that you type is knowable particularly by government. So this idea that you can just escape, you know, and, and be off the grid, it, it doesn't actually work. That's why I, I know it sounds like a joke, but I always say, you know, the, the only person who won't remember your password is you, right? Your password will be known to the authorities, in my opinion, in, in this high-tech world. There's no way around that. Okay, one, one final digression on this, because I think what I got out of what you said is that the sovereigns will control Will the uh, the tech oligarchs, and again, we can you know digress a little bit into how Google, Facebook, and everybody grabs data. Will they be subservient to the sovereigns, or will they have their own separate place? So this is a really interesting debate going on right now. I still think they'll be subservient to the sovereigns, but there are a lot of people who think that they they will be the new crypto kings. They will have effectively be sovereigns themselves. 
Um, I don't see that, but I do think they're immensely, immensely powerful and can be more so. So uh, then a bigger question is, do the sovereigns work with them to create a kind of public-private partnership uh, of, you know, sovereign, ultimate sovereign control? And the answer is actually probably yes, which is why I come back to we need to have some kind of conversation about um, you know, what are the rights and freedoms of citizens uh, who are just trying to get on with, uh, you know, having a creative life? Because the problem is that if you, um, once you have this grid of information and you can see everybody's behavior, inevitably the algorithms are kind of like the, the guard dogs of our, of our time. And they will bark when you move in a direction that seems antisocial or inappropriate or, you know, even if it's just not in keeping with what's been decided is good for you. And the problem is that if you have these algorithmic guard dogs funnel everybody into the same behaviors, you're kind of starting to turn into North Korea. And uh, I'm a big believer in what Frank Zappa said, which was progress comes from deviating from the norm. And we need a society where people, um, test the boundaries of, of thought and even action to create new and novel ways of doing things. And if you penalize them for that creativity, then you can't be surprised that you can end up in a society that um, isn't creative and isn't innovative and is more authoritarian. And I don't think that people want to move there. I think it's just kind of happening because technology is corralling us all in one direction. Laws and real estate. In our legal segment, we'll update news of interest to lenders, landlords, and investors with special focus on the evolving or devolving rights of privacy in America and beyond. 15% of Paycheck Protection Program loans could be fraudulent. Just in case anyone thinks the federal government ever operates efficiently, the New York Times reported in August that around 1.8 million of the Paycheck Protection Program's 11.8 million loans, which were supposed to be designed to help struggling businesses during the pandemic, had indications of loan fraud. This is more than 15% of the total amount of the loans totaling $76 billion dollars in potential loan fraud. And turning to more landlord woes. The California Court of Appeals awarded $2.7 million, that's with an M, to tenants who were being harassed by their landlord. The case is reported as Duncan versus Kihagi, a California Court of Appeals first district. The opinion was issued on August 9, 2021. The facts are too long to report, but they're worth reading if you're a landlord and you want to see a litany of everything that a landlord shouldn't do. The tenants alleged they were being terrorized by the landlord so that they'd leave in favor of the landlord being able to find higher paying tenants. And the court agreed. And some of the illegal actions taken by the landlord were as follows. Ignored or delayed responding to maintenance and upkeep issues. Removing of recycling bins causing the accumulation of trash. Serving the tenants restrictive occupancy rules implying that the tenants would have to pay the landlord's attorney's fees if they didn't comply. Threats of discontinuation of water services to the property, which were due to the failure of the landlord to renew the account. 
And finally, intermittent discontinuation of PG&E utility services due to actions by the landlord, to name a few. And the city of San Francisco makes it even harder for landlords in court. Landlords in San Francisco have even more problems if they end up going to court to collect back rent from commercial tenants. The city of San Francisco has just implemented an evidentiary presumption to excuse payment of rent owed by a commercial tenant based on the doctrine of frustration of purpose. In essence, if a landlord goes to court and sues for any rent which became due as of March 16, 2020, and there was a state or local health order that was in effect that limited or prohibited the commercial tenant from operating, then the presumption is that the health or emergency order frustrated the purpose of the lease and therefore the payment of rent for such period is excused. The new evidentiary presumption set forth in San Francisco Board of Supervisors Ordinance 122-21 and again the presumption only applies to covered commercial tenants. In the meantime, Goldman Sachs reported in September that evictions may hit 750,000 households in 2022 with about 2.5 million to 3.5 million households behind on rent. Turning to the all-out assault on your privacy in the U.S. and beyond, it is now official. Big Brother is watching you and your vaccine compliance. On September 9th, 2021, President Biden announced sweeping new vaccine mandates that will affect tens of millions of Americans, ordering all businesses with more than 100 employees to require their workers to be inoculated or face weekly testing. But not everyone is so happy about this. Henry McMaster, South Carolina's senator, said that the American dream has just turned into a nightmare under President Biden and the radical Democrats. They've declared war against capitalism, thumbed their nose at the Constitution, and empowered our enemies abroad. Rest assured, we will fight them to the gates of hell to protect the liberty and livelihood of every South Carolinan. But what does he really think? And are consumer privacy statutes designed to protect your privacy? Really just wolves in sheep's clothing? The following is a more in-depth review of some recent international and domestic privacy laws that will affect all of us. On November 1, 2021, the new Personal Information Protection Law of the People's Republic of China is going to go into effect. This law, which was adopted on August 20, 2021, is an expansive privacy law that will apply to all organizations doing business in China or targeting people in China. It has major compliance consequences and worldwide social data privacy implications. To get a proper perspective on what this means and how this may be another step towards stripping you of your privacy rights, I want to give you some historical background. To keep score, in 2016, the European Union passed its own privacy regulation, which they call the General Data Protection Regulation, which is designed to protect consumer data privacy in both the EU and European economic area. Then in 2018, the state of California passed the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, which was based in large part on the EU regulations. So now China is going to be launching, again, what I call the PIPP law, the Personal Information Protection Law. However, as you're going to see, the likelihood of a totalitarian overreach, a totalitarian overreach from this law is both a warning and a likely harbinger of bad things to come for everyone. So, so let's go through some of the highlights of the Personal Information Protection Law. First, it provides that covered companies doing business in China have to provide a way for users to opt out 
and to obtain user consent for collecting, sharing, or using a consumer's information. Covered consumers in China are given a number of rights for how their data can be used, and it makes it mandatory for covered consumers to be given options for how the data is handled. And penalties for not complying with the law could total up to 5% of a non-compliant company's annual revenue. Sounds pretty good so far for the consumer. However, the law requires that covered companies appoint a data protection officer to ensure that the company is compliant. This means that companies based outside of China have to go through very strict data processing protocols similar to the European model and that these companies must also complete data protection impact assessments. So even if companies do pass these stringent requirements to process data internationally, they still have to meet at least one of the following requirements. They've got to either receive approval from government authorities following a security assessment, they have to obtain certification from governmental authorities, they have to conclude a contract with a foreign entity that's drafted by governmental authorities, or comply with other conditions in law or regulations established by governmental authorities. So what's the result of this? Clearly the Chinese government's the regulator of who gets information, what information gets to be reviewed and monitored, and they can control anyone who does business in China. So let's review why this matters to you and your privacy. Let's look at Google. As I pointed out in our Where's the Love segment, assuming you use Google, and most everyone in the world does, it's compiled files about you based on what you search for and where you go on the net. Google operates in China and all over the world through its affiliates and it dances to the tune that the Chinese Communist Party says it has to dance to in order to do business there. So it's likely that most or all of the information that Google's compiled on you in this country is likely available to the CCP or others throughout the world through the Google affiliates and they can use it to track you just like Google. So just consider for a minute that just for a minute that the CCP might want to track a politician or business owner in the US that has financial or political or social interests or problems that could benefit the CCP. Even you or me or Joe Sixpack could be of interest to the CCP. Anyone who is vulnerable to social or political or financial pressure. But the converse is likely not true. Extensive limitations on access to any Chinese citizen's data will go into place under the new Chinese uh, security and data information laws that we discussed. Companies doing business in China will not have free access to Chinese consumers' information. The CCP is going to regulate it. So the effect is China will limit access of foreign companies to its citizens' data unless they pass a rigorous Chinese security review. Meanwhile, China and anyone else in the world who's got access to, to Google through Google or its affiliates will be able to collect the data that Google's compiled about you as they see fit. So rather than it being a Citizens Protection Act for China, it's really a China Protect Itself Act gaining leverage for China uh, in ways that the U.S. doesn't even come close to having. And it does not stop there. China is working hard on the heels of its implementation of a digital currency to also put into play a new digital currency electronic payment system. And they allegedly are doing this to replace all paper currency. So let's look at a couple of the reasons that uh, are put into play for this new digital currency payment system. First, what does it mean? With a digital payment system, the Chinese government can monitor which domestic accounts hold money, how much money is held in these accounts, and they can control the amount of money held in certain digital wallets. So they have the ability to monitor every note in the country, 
The Chinese government can adjust inflation, interest rates in real time. They can debit or credit the account of its citizens based on social scores and ratings. The second alleged benefit or reason for doing this is that the Chinese government is able to record the details of every single transaction, including foreign exchange transactions in the country. They can, they can monitor the amount of money involved in the transactions and the identity of every transacting person. So if you're operating in China, businesses are required by law to accept the digital currency. Chinese residents are able to complete transactions with companies located overseas only as long as they use the digital RMB and only as long as these companies have digital RMB wallets. So maybe you think, well, that's just the way it is in China. We don't do business there, but not so quick. The Federal Reserve Bank's already announced that it's going to proceed with a digital dollar when it gets sufficient congressional support, and it looks like that's going to happen not too far in the future. For some perspective, think of the government having all of your personal information. Think of the government controlling all of your financial transactions through digital currency or digital wallets instead of you having the right to hold cash or other negotiable instruments or the right to place your assets in banks or depositories of your choice. Sprinkle in a little bit of social rating based on your social or political or environmental history so that the government can add or subtract from your account punish you or reward you based on what you do and how you live and you're getting the picture. So again, is the wave of domestic and international consumer privacy statutes and the implementation of digital currency to help track and monitor your transactions, are they really just wolves in sheep's clothing that's designed to strip you of your privacy rights and allow crushing governmental control? Can't say for sure right now, but I sure know how George Orwell will think about it. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, Read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos.